Hello, everybody, and welcome to this year's edition of Design Research. My name is Steve Beatty, and I'm very happy to be your host again this year for what is the sixth edition of uh, our Design Research Conference. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands on which we um, all meet today. I'm here on Gadigal land uh, in Sydney, the land of the Eora Nation. I normally uh, live and work on Wongal land on the southern shores of the Parramatta River um, in Sydney's inner west. I would like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and extend that to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who are listening in to these presentations over the next few days. What a wonderful opportunity it is um, to get together and share and learn um, around this topic of design research. It's, it's one for me that has always been a, a little bit sort of left on the side of other design conferences or tucked away in these sort of really academic conferences. Um, and it's why six years ago we decided that what we wanted to do was give it time, space and energy for people who just wanted to think about and focus on and whose jobs were, were, were centred on design research to come together um, potentially meet one another and other like-minded souls for the very first time. Um, design research for me is one of our best opportunities to gain a rich understanding of the people for whom and with whom we will ultimately design. Um, and part of that is for us to understand, but part of it is for us to create space where those people can tell their own stories, where those people can own their own and share their own lived experience and feed that into a collective design process where people are in a position to design the things that impact them themselves. Um, and design research is really the first step in creating that space, creating that opportunity, um, providing a sense within our design processes where that compassion, that understanding um, and that collective lived experience can come to the fore. And I, I, I'm increasingly of the view, um, and it's not that I didn't have it previously, but the, the more we get into the way in which public services are designed the way in which large organisations and large institutions behave, um, I'm increasingly of the view that good design research and creating that space is the most critical element of good design work. Um, and the way in which our society is set up, the way in which it is shaped, the way in which we collectively contribute to our common good is enabled by and facilitated by this practice of design research. So I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that we can have this opportunity to come together for a few days, to learn from one another, to share stories, to talk about our challenges and what we've learned and how we've overcome them, and sometimes not. Sometimes um, some of the talks that you'll hear over these two days are people who are well and truly in the thick of trying to sort out some of these issues. And those stories are good for us. They help 
map a landscape that each of us may traverse at different times, different stages of our career. Um, but in, in a lot of cases, having that prior knowledge and having shared that, um, those lessons uh, along the way, we'll all be better prepared to face them when our time comes. Speaking of understanding the landscape of design research, I am thrilled today to introduce our opening speaker for the conference, Robin Beers. Um, Robin is a longtime practitioner based in the US, has been with Wells Fargo for some time, and has recently moved on to do other things. And I'll let Robin talk about those uh, when, she, when she begins. But um, Robin uh, recently conducted uh, a survey, if you like, of major design research practices in some of these big companies that we see <clears throat> operating um, globally. She's going to share with us today some of the lessons um, that she learned and some of the trends that she saw occurring. Robin, thank you so much for joining us and, and welcome to Design Research. Thank you so much for that great introduction. And I've been so excited about this for several weeks and um, can't wait to speak with everyone. Wonderful. Well, when you're ready, I will, I will leave it to, to your good hands. Thank you. Okay, terrific. Good morning, everyone. Let me get my presentation and slide share mode and hide this pesky thing up here and get present with you all. So um, I'm really am very excited to be speaking with you all today and kicking off Design Research 2022. I would love to be with you in beautiful Australia. Um, I had the good fortune of chairing a design thinking conference in Sydney in 2016. So I have been to your country, um, but I'm coming to you from the San Francisco Bay Area in California in the USA, and I'm sitting on occupied Miwok indigenous people's land. So I live in Marin County, uh, north of the Golden Gate Bridge, and the indigenous tribe here was, is called the Miwoks. So here's the journey. Get click on this so I can get to the next slide. Here's the journey of what's coming up and that I'm going to take you on today. Um, you know, my intention is to inspire and provoke. Like any good researcher, I have a lot of thoughts and a lot of questions, but not necessarily, you know, all the answers. But I hope you'll enjoy the questions themselves. So let's get started. So we've gathered here to get to this thing called Design Research 2022. So I said in my intention that I want to inspire and provoke, but I also want to make you miss Prince a little bit. So um, we'll be discussing our uh, craft and new perspectives, and then hopefully later you'll be inspired to listen to your favorite Prince album. So I want to start with why. I want to start with having us each reflect around why we do this work. You know, what keeps us believing in this work? What drew us to this work in the first place? So here's my circuitous, circuitous path to doing user research um, and being a user research leader. I, you know, really have always loved the humanities, 
I had an English uh, undergrad, um, women's studies minor. I went on to get a master's in African-American studies, um, really being drawn to social justice work um, and diversity and equity consulting, which led me to then um, pursue a PhD in organizational psych. And then uh, for most of the 90s, I was working in the fields of um, diversity, equity, and inclusion in both the US and in South Africa. And it was one of my trips back to the Bay Area while in South Africa that it was in the late 90s during the first dot-com boom. And I started to see really, you know, professions shifting around me and what people were deciding to do um, shifting around me. So, you know, instead of people talking about um, oh, I'm working at this nonprofit or, you know, trying to get a grant, you know, to study here or there. People were saying, oh, I'm I'm now working at a technology startup and, um, you know, I'm helping to, um, you know, create plans for how to make this, um, you know, startups, products and services more uh, human centric and more usable. And I was like, huh, this sounds really interesting because. At the heart, you know, what I really am passionate about, um, in addition to social justice, is making business more human. So one day I was reading a newspaper and I came across this um, story in the New York Times by a woman named Katie Hafner. And uh, if you look up Katie Hafner, she's written a lot of things and was very pioneering in the early days of the web. She just came out with a novel. She has a memoir. So, you know, prolific writer. But she wrote this little article um, in the New York Times called Anthropologists in the Corporate Jungle. And I was like, huh, what does that mean? Um, because even though I didn't have an anthropology degree, I sort of like traversed all of the humanities and social scientists around anthropology. And so, you know, in this article, she's describing people who've come to the uh the corporate world through, um, you know, having uh, humanities and social science expertise. And she, you know, uh, shared some of their names and shared things around, you know, what they were called, like, um, you know, uh, architects for the new economy was one of the titles, um, human computer interaction scientists and so far so forth. So that got me into researching um, this field. And, um, you know, I didn't really think that there was going to be a place for me in this field until, you know, in technology, really, um, until I became, you know, interested in this idea of like, hmm, well, maybe this is an avenue through which, you know, we can really infuse more humanness um, in, into business. And so that led me um, to becoming a user research and eventually a research leader. And listen, I really do believe that we as researchers have superpowers and that these superpowers are um, critical for business to be thriving today. I've done other talks on this topic, but to summarize, you know, I think that we help organizations learn not just about their customers, but about themselves. So when we go out and bring in insights from the outside and find out what is true for people, real people out there in the world, 
we bring that in and it forces the organizations that we're working with, if they're smart and care to grapple with it, um, to wrestle with their own assumptions and strategies and culture inside so that it be, can become more aligned with um, becoming the type of business and offering the kinds of services and products that real people actually want. So our field is now several decades old um, and it's evolving in very interesting ways. Let's look at how. So human-centered design or user-centered design, this is how it started. Early user research focused on making products more usable and really the you know one-to-one -one interaction of a machine and person. But over time, you know, human-centered design um, is has become more complex. It's still though the center, the standard uh, sort of steps based on you know user research, observation, prototyping, ideating on those prototypes, iterating, um, and this you know process is often referred to as user-centered design or design thinking or human-centered design, and it's taught in most of the um, you know, design programs um, and leading design schools around the world. But now, oops, my slide doesn't want to move forward. Click into it. But now, uh, I really want to provoke us to challenge ourselves, no matter where we sit in whatever organization we're in, to go beyond the mandate around um, user use, usability and appeal and recognize the larger context of societal well-being and planetary sustainability. So, you know, for decades now, designers and researchers have been taught to consider human needs in their work. This is not new anymore. And probably all of you have gone to conferences where you know, that sentiment is still kind of being sold in. And all of us as practitioners and professionals in this work, we're, we've already bought that, right? We know that, you know, human needs are, are critical. Um, but we've maybe gone too far in considering only human needs. Good design that is good only for people without looking at the well-being of our planet as a whole it's kind of getting us into trouble, <laughs> right? Wouldn't you say? Um, you know, so humans should be a part of the equation, but not at the expense of everything else. We can only create a good life for people if we create a good life for the planet. So I'm going to come down off my uh, philosophical uh, uh, ledge here and kind of come down to earth and talk about this you know, need to come to a more, you know, systemic view, ecosystem view of our field rather than just um, a user-centered one with the um, example of wayfinding apps. So I'm not calling out any particular product or company here, but, you know, the general idea of these products is that they center the driver, the commuter, um, and getting them from, from point A to point B as quickly as possible, as efficiently um, as possible. The problem of this strategy is that it 
privileges the needs of one audience, the commuter, over the experience of others. And so in this picture, you're looking at a line of cars on a suburban residential street in New Jersey, on the eastern in the eastern coast of um, the U.S. And um, in the story, there a woman is describing how her teenage son has to carry out um, orange cones in order to stop the flow of, of traffic down their residential street so that they can back out of their driveway and go to um, school and, and to work. And this, you know, is a complete change of pattern in this community from, you know, how urban designers designed it, where they want to, you know, direct the flow of traffic to large major arteries um, and kind of keep the peace and, um, and quiet um, of, you know, actual residential streets. So, you know, these apps um, enables people to kind of do the selfish thing, right? And eventually, as more and more people do the selfish thing, that's bad for society as a whole. So, you know, the algorithms are giving hundreds of people the shortest paths, but they don't compute the consequences of those shortest paths. So, you know, we as researchers have been taught the key question, how might we? And I think we need to uh, add the question, and at what cost? So, you know, this has become really frustrating for city planners. And um, I spoke with somebody who does city planning in the city of Denver, Colorado, and they said that they actually tried to um, contact some of these companies that make wayfinding apps. And, you know, he just was basically throwing up his hands and said, you know, we tried reaching out to the company and they won't take our calls. They don't think it's part of their mandate to um, consider the system around uh, the product, not just the user and the product. So I think that is really an interesting example. So in pursuit of frictionless experience, we've not really stopped to consider the societal consequences of our products. And, you know, it's easy to forget that humans are not the only ones affected by our designs. We have to think about the relationship between humans and technology and our planet. And this is no longer a linear relationship. This is a complex system, a web of interdependencies, an ecosystem of players. And designing an ecosystem is a huge responsibility. How can designers approach this task and researchers, I'm including researchers and designers as kind of synonymous, um, how can we approach this task with a people, planet, and people, planet centric mindset? So it's kind of a mouthful. Um, so I'm going to move now into talking about impact and interconnection. So, what are the mindset shifts and frameworks that will help us to create a more just and balanced world? So you know, we are living in crazy, unpredictable VUCA-fueled times that I don't think any of us could have imagined just a few years ago. So, you know, I don't need to tell any of you, like, our world is not stable. So, you know, when we step back and try to gain some sense of, of calm and control, you know, it occurs to me that the only thing that we can control is how fast we learn, 
and how fast we can then adapt based on that learning. And I think this is really great news for researchers because research is all about learning. And in that sense, I like to say, and you can, you can use this in your own work, research is the most predictable practice that we have. So, you know, we used to think we could predict all sorts of things about, you know, supply chains and, um, you know, factory throughput and all these things. But really, there's there, because of this interconnected, complex ecosystem web that we all live in, um, we really can't predict the future. But we know that, you know, we can go out and find edges of the future out there. I was just talking to a, a consultant today in uh, San Antonio, Texas, and he said when he started his practice, his consulting practice back in 2010, they couldn't find a lot of you know, top quality uh, talent that wanted to move to San Antonio, Texas. And so they had to source their um, staff from all over the place and kind of convince people that they wanted to work remotely. Um, and so they were you know, far ahead of the curve um, when you know, in 2020, we were all working um, remotely. And so that's an interesting you know, example of an edge case where if people were trying to study and make you know, scenario forecasts about the future of work, they might've found companies like this that were already you know, um, trying to understand how they could be productive and collaborative remotely. So you know, it's not enough to do research solely on making our current systems better, you know, tweaking, optimizing, smoother, easier, quicker, more profitable. We also need to be looking at where can we do deeper research? Um, and I believe that even if we're, you know, working at the most, I don't know, straightforward B2C company that you can imagine, we can find those areas where we can do deeper research. But we also, I think, as researchers really need to own our the big role that we can play, that we should play to provoke and convene. So as I said earlier, you know, provoke in terms of saying, hey, I'm seeing this reality out there doesn't seem to really map to the reality that we think of, um, you know, in, in this organization, or these things are out of alignment, how do we get them into alignment? And then convene, we have all of this great data, this raw material, these stories that we can bring in that can really um, influence our team's thinking and change and develop our organization's operating assumptions. So, you know, we have a very, very strong role to play in clarifying vision, proposing solutions, and um, for really planning the seed for a future in which the needs of human beings and the needs of our planet are in balance. So the pandemic, you know, and everything that's gone along with it has made starkly obvious the interconnections that shape our world. And, you know, even though I spent a you know, decade plus in diversity, equity, and, consult and, and inclusion consulting, um, you know, it's only been recently, I'm sort of, you know, ashamed to say that I've been facing the fact that our field of design research 
has largely until lately ignored ethics and social justice. So, you know, with the pressure of pandemic and quarantine, you know, racial, social unrest, um, and now the war in Ukraine, it's become increasingly clear just how global bias, discrimination, systemic racism um, are rooted in our lives. You know, people do not have equal access to services, to education, to clean air, to water, to justice. So from governments to societies, business to technology, we who are helping to shape design solutions, you know, are we're making decisions that affect lots and lots of people. So we really need to be mindful about um, including the majority of, of people in our research um, and design processes so that we can create diverse, equitable, safe, inclusive um, products that are enjoyable for all people. And there's a lot of good people doing work in this field. So, you know, many of us are going to be extremely familiar with this model, the double diamond um, model. And this um, came out of, of work that the UK Design Council did, both through doing research on design-led companies um, and through their own experimentation. Um, and, you know, I think it's, I think this is a very helpful model, um, but I'm not sure that it can, and I don't think it can adequately equip us to address the complex times that we're living in alone. So I'll say we're not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but maybe we need new models as well. So Kate Rasworth is an economist, and her concept is this around this um, idea of donut uh, economics and, um, you know, her, she starts with the premise that, you know, there's a general agreement that our current systems are, are failing us and they were designed for a very different time. And even worse, as they've grown out of balance, these systems now can actively contribute to the challenges that we face around climate justice, and climate change, racial injustice, inequality, an aging population, poor men mental well being. So we're at a critical juncture. So this donut consists of two uh, concentric rings. There's in the inner circle of peach color, you see the social foundation. So this is, you know, how do we approach our research so that we're looking at you know, what are the um, life's, what are life's essentials that we may want to offer um, to, you know, humanity in the world? And how, you know, are the current situations that we find ourselves problem solving in either, you know, ameliorating or, or, um, help our, or har causing harm around these um, social foundational uh, needs? And then, um, you have the outer ring and we could use this model and think of this outer ring as like an ecological um, ceiling. So this is the ecological ceiling that we don't want to overshoot, you know, with what we're creating inside of our organizations. These are the planetary boundaries that, you know, support uh, life on earth. 
So in between these two kind of peach areas, we have what Kate Rasworth calls the donut. Um, so this is a space that's both ecologically safe and socially just, a space in which humanity can thrive. And I haven't used this model yet because I just discovered it in doing research for this talk. But I would love to use this in, um, you know, as, as a model for analysis, as a, as a provocation model and doing design thinking workshops. It's like, let's analyze our ideas and our how might we's with where would we locate them um, in this donut? Are they in the donut or are they outside of the donut? And what would we need to change um, and recommend to bring them into this donut? So, you know, we need bigger questions than just usability. Um, we need to make sure that we are designing and researching with an awareness that we're putting in motion social systems. And we, I know for me, and maybe because I've been doing this for a long time, I really want to be in spaces where I can have a direct connection to um, impact and meaningfulness and positive change. So quick story about that. Um, I, you know, all, all systems are designed, right? So if we don't like how the system is operating, whatever that system is, we have to intentionally redesign it. Um, and not just, again, for, for individuals, but for communities and, and societies at large. So I got connected to um, a, a colleague at Wells Fargo, um, somebody I didn't know, some, and one of my friends from an anthropology um, and ethnography group that I belong to um, connected us on LinkedIn, and she's like, you two should meet. So we um, had, a, had a conversation and he said, so I have created a role for myself inside of Wells Fargo where I aim to bring together a, an ecosystem of players. So banks, not just Wells Fargo, but other banks, corporations, nonprofits, civic um, organizations. I'm going to bring together this very, you know, diverse group of stakeholders to tackle the issue of African-American home ownership. So um, I think nationally, the, um, the rate of home ownership for African-Americans compared to whites is only 67%. So if 100, you know, I think it, I, I'm going to get the statistics wrong. Sorry, I'm not a great numbers person. I should have double check that. But um, but where he lives in Minneapolis, I do remember that it's starkly lower than what the national average is. It's more it's more like 47 uh, percent if African-American U.S. Um, home ownership is is around 67 percent. And we all know, um, you know, what happened with the murder of George Floyd two years ago. And, you know, that was a symptom of, you know, a system that had been in operation for a long time. And we also know that homeownership is one of the key ways that families can um, 
build wealth, you know, through having an appreciating asset and so forth. And there are there have been many policies um, designed in um, in the U.S. to severely limit African Americans' ability to buy real estate um, that will appreciate. And so his you know focus was on closing that racial wealth gap through um, unleashing the potential um, of, for more African Americans in Minneapolis um, to buy homes and then use that as a blueprint to replicate um, these programs in other cities in kind of culturally specific ways. So I was very, very excited um, by this conversation. And um, we developed a plan together that combines um, a design research approach with this ecosystem and kind of systems shifting approach um, and can you know leverage the the um, experience and the knowledge across this ecosystem of players. Um, so that work is happening now and um, you know he, the individual, his name is Dondi that I was working with, he intuitively got why a design thinking, design research approach um, was going to make this entire you know, endeavor um, more successful. So these are the kinds of bigger questions that I hope we can go after. So um, earlier I talked about the double diamond um, and I wanna mention that the UK Design Council has updated it. Um, they've defined new design principles and published some really great reports on evolving from user-centered to systems conscious. So like user-centered, what's the person doing? Systems conscious, oh, this takes place in a wider context to a systems shifting perspective that um, recognizes that to deal with complex and messy issues, we need to work more systemically across multiple interventions and in different places across the system. And I'm just gonna read this one brief quote from one of their reports. By designing systemically, we mean both design as practiced with an awareness of the wider system context and perception of interdependence. This is system conscious design. And with the specific objective of changing a system, system shifting design, we are interested in exploring the latter as a practice that is expansive and transcends rather than simply merges design with design systems thinking. So I encourage you to check those um, reports out. Um, so, you know, the pandemic has forced us to go back to the essentials and consider what is truly important. As the world turns toward recovery, we hope, um, now's the time to address other major challenges with renewed optimism. It's really hard to read that and be optimistic at this particular moment. So I want to, I want to acknowledge that. Um, but, you know, we did see in the past couple of years that governments and the world, all of us can act on a global challenge and that we can change our behavior. You know, I had never worn a mask before. I had never, you know, stayed home to keep other health, people healthy and myself healthy. But we had a lot of big shifts in our behaviors and really in our culture in a very short period of time. So, 
you know, there's still a lot of things going on in the world and um, difficult things, but I hope we can also maintain a sense of optimism about our collective capacity to, to design a more hopeful tomorrow. So Steve mentioned that um, I had the privilege of talking to a, a collection of research leaders across different um, US companies that I was interested in. And, um, you know, I've been doing research for more than 20 years. And it's really amazing to think about how much the discipline has matured. You know, we talk a lot about um, design practice maturity and how design-led organizations are more profitable. But I think we can also, you know, turn that lens on design research and think about our own uh, practice maturity in terms of, you know, where are we on that trajectory or that curve. So user research has become much more ubiquitous in organizations, especially tech organizations, but all sorts. Um, and, you know, research has become one of the, you know, key um, elements or functions on multidisciplinary teams. So a 2017 report, so a few years old at this point, um, said that 67% of researchers in the U.S. were in-house. So not, you know, working for themselves or at agencies, but inside of companies. So that's pretty remarkable over the last, you know, couple of decades. Um, so I had the privilege of talking with leaders from these brands that you see here on the right. And a couple of um, themes rose to the top. The first one was that every leader that I talked to um, either had or was building a dedicated research operations team, which I thought it was really interesting. I kind of think of research operations as like, it is to research as um, design ops, of course, but even more than that, like uh, a design system for researchers. So um, in fact, I talked to a researcher at a startup who, um, when I left their, their logo off of here, <laughs> whoops, um, who was building a research operations function first before hiring even a single researcher. So this is a B2B startup. And, um, you know, she just explained, and it made a lot of sense to me that until they built out research enablement functions, such as recruiting processes for the B2B space that they were in, it wouldn't be very efficient or fun to try to execute research. Um, I spoke with the head of research ops, so that's a role that's emerging. Uh, at a software company, and she described the research pillars in this way as recruiting um, functions around governance. So like, you know, your NDAs, your consent forms, how are you going to start uh, store raw data, et cetera, uh, tools. So managing the tools and managing how tools are rolled out, um, including knowledge management systems, which we'll get into in a second. Um, communications, how the team was going to communicate out what they were doing and proliferate insights. And then also some around like research craft advancement, like what types of um, what types of training uh, researchers needed in the org and how to support that. So I'm going to go into some of the nuts and bolts of um, 
research democratization. Uh, this is a very interesting um, set of topics, um, but I wanted to talk a little bit, just mention briefly about the, the um, new roles. So when I talked to folks, some of the roles mentioned included librarian, internal PR communications specialist, um, having a UX journalist on staff whose job was just to like, you know, communicate out these stories that research was um, was collecting in a more developed way, um, even like creating documentaries and headline pieces. Um, and one person that I spoke with had the title of senior equity research strategist. So this role uh, sat at the enterprise uh, level of this very large company, and they're responsible for really influencing the whole company, not just the specific line of business. So her team's charter is um, to ensure that equity is designed into their company's experiences and products, and to increase the ability of designers, researchers, and product managers to create more experiences and products with equity in mind. And one last additional focus is making the company a more equitable place for employees by surfacing and addressing institutional inequities. So I thought that was just a really, really cool, um, cool role. So let's get into the very, very hot, you can warm your, your hands here, the very hot topic of research democratization. So what is it and what's all the controversy about? So I'm kind of going to tackle it from two <clears throat> angles here. Um, democratizing research is about empowering anyone in the organization to create and consume user insights to make in more informed decisions. That sounds great. So this can look like allowing non-researchers to conduct studies, um, and it can also um, bleed into the area of research repositories. So how do you allow people to access insights that are tagged and searchable and can be combined and recombined? Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of the, um, I would say, hype around research democratization is that it's going to, you know, dramatically um, increase the volume of insights and the velo velocity of insights that you can create. So more insights faster. And, you know, it'll free up researchers' time from doing, you know, kind of low value, maybe evaluative studies. Um, and it can also increase ROI because you won't be conducting the same inquiries over and over again because you didn't know that, you know, that research had already been done. So those are the professed benefits. Um, and, you know, there are pros and cons. So starting with the cons around non-researchers doing research, the, the con arguments that I read um, were really around um, that, that researchers would kind of get squeezed out and their expertise would be devalued. Um, you know, if anybody can do this, why do we need to hire more um, research researchers and keeping teams uh, under-resourced? The other concern is around, um, you know, non-researchers just carrying out studies that lead them to, um, you know, poor quality decisions and that the, you know, if it's garbage in, it's garbage out. Um, 
and then that will you know further have a negative halo on our profession on the positive side proponents will say well you know non-researchers are going to talk to customers anyway um and a lot of people and i would put myself in this camp um when i've seen non-researchers uh, get into trying to conduct their own research, I found that it heightens their appreciation um, for our expertise, that they're like, oh, wow, I thought, you know, you made this look so easy, you know, like a professional ballerina makes everything look easy, but then when you actually try to do it, it's, um, it's, it, it's night and day between being a professional and being an amateur. Um, and I do think there is, could, could be a grain of truth, but this is, you know, still one of the proposed uh, or supposed benefits that it could help free up some of the research team's time for other activities. So, you know, I, I think that um, we did we did do uh, a democratization pilot at Wells Fargo. That's before I had this model um, that uh, I'll tell you his name in a minute because his name is on a different slide. But, you know, I think it's important when we're thinking about democratizing research by letting non-researchers, whether they be designers or product managers, um, conduct research to really look at it uh, uh, um, in terms of this risk continuum. So, you know, we spent a lot of time at Wells Fargo um, doing pretty comprehensive, maybe too comprehensive research trainings for non-researchers, um, which I think people found were interesting, but it was maybe a bit overkill. And then, of course, um, not sufficient for, you know, turning non-researchers into, re into researchers. So, um, you know, some of the issues that arose when actually trying to then um, enable people to do research were things like, you know, our ops team would recruit participants for a product-led study. And then we'd be like, okay, we've got your participants, your research interviews are scheduled for, you know, this day. And they'd be like, oh yeah, meant to, you know, reach out to you and let you know, like, we don't have the prototype yet. Like we, we didn't get it together or, oh, other meetings have come up and we can't do that. And we're like, oh my God, no, we can't, you know, we can't recruit participants. And then you're like not there to do the research. Like that's a terrible, you know, customer experience. So um, we learned in, in our pilot that we still needed an ops person or a researcher to be involved coaching um, you know, our partners throughout the process, like doing an intake meeting, helping them with study design, um, giving them, you know, really clear expectations around, you know, what their expectations were around prototype development and, and showing up for the research. So, you know, in short, with our brief uh, pilot, we um, found that it took more time and effort to deliver um, than the value that research democratization gave back to the organization. So that doesn't mean that I'm not going to introduce it, you know, in my future companies. I, I think I've learned um, what not to do and where um, smart democratization makes sense. And I think it's, you know, really 
in this um, you know yellow and green space here, where I, I think that with tools that offer unmoderated research and A/B testing capabilities, it's really appropriate um, to to let designers or product folks like run these experience experiments. They're low risk, you know the decisions that are made are probably not like completely, um, you know, dire, you know, one way or the other. Um, and as the risk increases, um, we can be there more in a research uh, assisted way. Um, and then of course, there's that holy grail of the strategic research that we want to be able to keep and lead um, while, you know, um, also being able to include our partners in that as well. I talked with some leaders who were just all, you know, all 100% down for um, shifting all of their evaluative, their usability type research um, to democratization model. Um, I still feel like there are very strategic insights that you can get from usability work that I'm not sure that in my own teams, I would shift all of the evaluative work um, that way. So I do see it as a partnership. And um, that risk model that I just showed was, um, I was inspired by uh, Bezo Shirjani. And he says, democratization is poor to not competitive with the focus of a research team. We have to acknowledge that our role in helping our organizations learn and make better decisions means that we cannot be the ones with all the answers. Instead, we need to identify areas where our organizations need to learn in rigorous and structured ways and actively support that learning. And remember, you know, going back to the, you know, what I think our superpower is, it is around, you know, unleashing um, real learning, not just facts, but learning that changes assumptions, changes perspectives, um, and changes our strategies in our organization. So I do think that research democratization um, is, is a lever um, in, in that very worthy uh, goal. So shifting gears to just kind of the final section of this presentation and kind of the other side of the coin of research democratization, um, is, and this one centers on knowledge management. So, and I think it goes back to um, understanding where your practice is um, and where you are on the research um, practice maturity curve. So this is a quote I took from, from a presentation it's cited in the notes, but it says, uh, maintaining an insight library is one of the most sophisticated things you can do in a research practice. And I agree, and I think it's really hard. Um, and there's some really, you know, interesting new tools out there. Um, but yeah, it is very sophisticated, and not all of us are ready to be sophisticated, right? Even if we all want to be. So you know, you you saw the brands um, that I, you know, the companies that I talked to, um, some pretty, you know, recognizable. Um, brands, and this was the the sentiment that was expressed to me over and over again. You know, the, a knowledge management system that really works doesn't exist. You know, our repository is not at the level we would want. Um, 
So, you know, I have to admit that I've held a large degree of skepticism towards uh, research repositories that are like taggable and searchable and all of that. Um, with the search, with with the click of a button, I have been pretty skeptical. But lately, I I've become more hopeful, and I've become a lot more enthusiastic about the promise of a robust um, repository. So I've been, you know. Uh, compiling requirements and evaluating tools, and um, you know, I am I am definitely here for AI-enabled automatic transcription and the ability to very easily uh, clip and share videos. Like, yes, please. Like, if I had automatic trans transcription that I just had to like clean up for my dissertation research, I feel like I could have been finished like two years earlier. <laughs> so, but just like democratizing, um, conducting research, building a comprehensive repository will take uh, a lot of work to see, maintain and optimize. So ongoing success requires an active collaboration of team members and maintenance ownership. So who, who all is gonna tag this data? Um, who will build the um, taxonomy structure? Researchers will have to be on board. Um, and that was a number one barrier that the leaders I spoke to shared about making their um, knowledge management efforts yield benefits. Um, so I really do think it's going to take a lot of cultural work from, from the research leader to, um, you know, incent people um, on the team to make this an ingrained process. And I also think, um, going back to the new roles theme, that um, assigning a dedicated research librarian or curator role within the research op ops team would be very, very helpful because there's just a lot of maintenance and, and cleanup. Um, so, you know, back to this claim that with research democratization, um, you know, all this time will be saved. I think that's the wrong way to look at it. I think, you know, it's like we're becoming, we're evolving, we're becoming more sophisticated, we're, you know, driving better return on insights, but time savings, I don't, I don't think so. So a key question when thinking about insights repositories is who is using those insights? Like who's the, the audience or the user who's going into this repository and what is their purpose? So I think, um, you know, at a high level, we're going there to see what we already know about a topic, right? But if I'm a researcher going in, I may be, uh, you know, looking at these insight nuggets um, and wanting to know like, okay, well, how can I trust this? What's the veracity of this data? I want to be able to trace this um, to the raw data um, so that, you know, I can decide whether or not I need to do more research in this area or if I can just kind of synthesize what, what we've already done. Whereas, you know, perhaps a senior executive, they may just want to know the return on insights. Like what decisions did we make um, and what decisions did the research inform? Okay, boom, I'm done. And then there's everything in between that, you know, we might use to curate information across, um, you know, videos and different programs and transcripts for a workshop or to put a presentation together to ground a new um, 
leader that's come into the organization or to kick off a new program. Um, so, you know, I get, I do still get skeptical when I read articles and medium and so forth. There's a lot in, uh, in medium about democratization that, you know, we can take our research findings and um, autonomize them, make them into these atomic units of insight um, that then will just, you know, be combined and recombined. I, I, you know, I don't think that autonomized research nuggets stripped of context is insight. I think that, you know, nuggets of information have to be aggregated and searchable. That would be awesome. But they also have to be traced back to the original study, the broader context, you know, what year was it, like <laughs> all sorts of things, who, who did it. Um, and so I think in evaluating any tools out there that this, this requirement of being able to maybe zoom in on a nugget, but zoom out again to, to locate it in the broader context um, is really at the top of my list of, of requirements. Um, so yesterday when I was talking to the um, content, uh, the conference curator, I said, do people in Australia um, play Wordle? <laughs> because this tweet um, is very context specific, right? Wordle is the sourdough starter of Omicron. And then this brilliant uh, comeback. Just imagine your 2019 self trying to make sense of this tweet. And I know it's all pixelated, but it was just too good because either this slide is funny to you because you know what sourdough starter and Omicron and Wordle is, <laughs> or this is just a very, you know, meta comment on the importance of, of um, context. But just like we need to balance what's good for an individual with what's good for the planet, we also need to get creative about rightly combining the human and technology into our knowledge management approaches. So we need to balance the approach, the need for self-service with the richness of human context and, and storytelling. So, you know, a, a few of the leaders I talked to had some sad stories about their repository efforts that have become, you know, in essence, kind of information junkyards. Um, one research leader shared that that the low that it was low adoption um, from the research team themselves that negatively impacted the usefulness um, of the the tool the solution that they purchased and that it it became like really brittle these are her words a huge mess um, instead of a robust expansive or complete um, repository so you know only you can decide if your organization is up for the amount of effort required to upkeep a really robust knowledge management system and you know to decide do you have the human capacity you know the people who will have to bear this effort do you have the kind of culture where you know researchers are willing um, to start doing you know study design um, data collection analysis in this tool, which will then, you know, seed the repository. So, you know, and as leaders, you know, we need to think about, well, what can be offered to invite compliance, right? Because, you know, researchers are incented by learning new things, communicating those learnings, 
but it's kind of like when they go out into the repository, they never get that feedback of, of, um, you know, somebody looked at it again and, you know, what did they learn? What did they do with that information? So it's, I think an interesting question to debate, like, well, how can we incent researchers to do something that they might not ever, you know, get the, the feedback that it was helpful or, or useful. Um, and I think we also, you know, need to think about the audience too. Like, will our partners actually do self-service insights or will they, will it still fall to um, researchers to, to, to conduct synthesis? But don't get me wrong, because this was one of my favorite quotes from the interviews that I did. Synthesis is near and dear to my heart. Um, and when he said this, the main currency of research is synthesis. I just, you know, I heard voice, you know, the angels singing. Because to me, synthesis is all about making connections, storytelling, sense-making, and, you know, these are very much human activities. You know, this synthesis, sense-making, storytelling, these are not time-wasting activities. These are the most valuable activities that a researcher can engage in. So if we, you know, approach some of this, these democratization efforts with an eye towards we can do more of this, synthesis, storytelling, sense-making, I know for me personally, that engages me and makes me, you know, is, is an incentive to, to participate, to imply, to um, comply. So I think we need to be able to understand our why when it comes to democratization and explicitly articulate and communicate that within the team before just, you know, pushing a uh, fancy uh, knowledge management tool. So almost done very second to last slide. I also want to offer that, you know, I think of user-centered design tools like personas, task models, journey maps, um, experience models as, as products that us, our research teams can um, produce, can make from research insights. Um, and that these products can in some ways fulfill some of the promise of knowledge management repositories because they take insights out of individual reports, synthesize them and bake them into reusable artifacts. So um, they also take time and they also take work. Um, and, you know, I learned from, from the leaders I talked to that personas are created, but they're used inconsistently across organizations. Um, for some, that was just a symptom of where they were at in terms of, um, their organization's insight maturity. Uh, whereas for others, they said, oh, well, we don't really do personas because like our, um, our audience or our market is the entire world. Um, same can be said for journey maps. Most of the time people talked about using journey maps on particular initiatives or projects um, <clears throat> and less often to depict the end-to-end -end journey of a customer. And I thought one leader insightfully, um, you know, explained that by by saying like, you know, journey maps that are end to end are tricky because usually there's no one person in the organization that is responsible for the end to end journey. So I was like, hmm, that's something really interesting to think about 
when we're in the business of creating <clears throat> holistic, positive experiences across that entire journey. So all of these democratization tasks take work. It is heavy lifting and they need to be undertaken with that in mind and prioritized according to the maturity and the needs of the practice. So between the challenges that humans, our communities, societies, and our planet now faces, as well as the opportunities to evolve our field, I think it's a really, really exciting time to be a design researcher. And I just want to thank you for your time and attention, as well as um, wish you a fantastic um, conference and couple of days of learning together. Thank you very much.